Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio, CFRO in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, March the 27th, 2020. I am your host, Allison Cole, and I am joined here today by my guest co-host, Megan Beattie. Hello. With Franny, right? She's taking yeah. a nap. And yeah. Grace Swampold. Hi. Welcome, everyone. And we welcome you on today's show in these uncertain times of a state of emergency being present in Canada, around the world, including Vancouver, from where we broadcast the show. As of yesterday, Vancouver Co-op Radio has closed its doors to people. However, we are still able to bring you original quality and up-to-date programming here at Animal Voices. And today we are actually all on Skype here together recording this episode for you. There's been some blips where this is a learning curve for us, but we are we're making this happen. We believe in social distancing (laughs) to keep everyone here safe so that we can flatten the curve on this virus and so that Canada's healthcare services can serve Canadians to treat the victims of COVID-19. The world keeps persevering, though, and we want to take some time on this show to address ongoing issues in the way we treat animals, which are all interconnected globally with what we are seeing now. It's a result of eating animals. This week marked the seventh year anniversary of the death of Bao Mingcheng, a former slaughterhouse worker at the Hallmark Chicken Plant on Pandora Street here in Vancouver. Mr. Cheng suffered a fatal heart attack after working a 13-hour shift and 70-hour work weeks in the slaughterhouse. For our first segment today, our guest co-host Megan Beatty, who is also the founder and organizer of the local Vancouver Chicken Save Group, will shed some light about the background of what happened to Mr. Cheng, and she will discuss her story with interactions herself with some of the slaughterhouse workers who she engages with at the weekly chicken vigils at the slaughter plant. And for our feature interview, we are pleased to present Justin Reinick to you, who has an incredible story to share that you may not hear anywhere else except for here on Animal Voices. It involves years of working in torture, death and decay, extreme health risks, PTSD, and transforms into a brighter light where he changed his life from working in factory farms in Manitoba for seven years as a young man to now not only living and advocating the vegan lifestyle, but spreading that compassion towards animals throughout his area in Manitoba, Canada, largely known as cattle farmer country. So that amazing story is coming up in about 20 minutes. So please do stay tuned. Now we want to chat a little bit today about 
how we are coping these days in the climate of a worldwide pandemic stemmed from a zoonotic disease. Megan, how are you and Franny doing these days and your kitties? Um, well, my Franny and my kitties are keeping me uh, sane. Um, I'm not doing too well. I've got a cold and I've been self-isolating for the past week um, and am kind of lonely. But And if I didn't have Franny, I don't think that I would be getting out and I need to take her out for exercise and stuff. And so um, it's very, this is very strange, but something that's really been lurking in the back of my mind is um, money and what like I'm fine now and I think many folks are fine now but um, adjusting and kind of not knowing what the future holds like if I'll be able to go back to nannying or maybe the family won't have the money to be able to pay me and so you know like I, I don't know what what the future holds and I, I do acknowledge the privilege that I have in certain aspects but I just also acknowledge that this is touching people all different people in all sorts of ways and it's yeah it's really scary yeah it sure is and money is definitely an issue i know our government in canada announced some benefits that will be available and it is yet to be seen how that's going to play out i from what i understand is everyone is looking for this extra federal government money right now who knows mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so what about mm -hmm. you grace you and i live in this bubble called the university bc campus it's a it's a city on its own with over usually over mm -hmm. fifty thousand residents i work where you live <laughs> and i work in, <laughs> in campus residence my job is an essential service basically to serve you the student who i am seeing there you in your student dorm room how has it been like for you? And I know you work in an essential service as well. Yeah, so it is hard because it's quite dead on campus. Um, I'm very far from my my neat necessities, such as going to the grocery store and my jobs. So it's about a 45-minute bus ride for me to get to the zero-waste grocery store that I work at, NADA, which is still opened. And it's a little bit of a stressful experience. I'm prone to anxiety. And when I'm on the bus, I am careful to not touch anything but I wonder you know if it is safe for me to take the bus before entering my workspace or returning back home to my roommates who are all in self-quarantine so it's definitely a trying time I'm also someone who is born and raised in the states which is where all my family is so I'm far from a lot of my loved ones I'm lucky enough to live with one of my best friends but um but yeah it's definitely a time of reflection on what I value for sure and the people who who care about me yeah. right and you mentioned taking mm -hmm. transit that I find I you know I went actually to the supermarket early this week to get some last essentials and I felt like this is the last time I'm going out shopping that was so stressful I don't want to do that again mm -hmm. transit must be super super stress inducing these days I would imagine it still has its peak hours for sure. Uh, I feel more comfortable on the way home when I'm usually the only person on the bus, but it is it is difficult that I'm not only going out for groceries, that I'm going out to work. So mm -hmm. I feel that I can help other people when I am out, but I would much prefer be able to bike or walk, which is not just, just physically impossible coming from 
the university endowed lands. Yeah, I hear you there. So all the events are being canceled these days, except people are putting on online events like Zoom events. I actually attended a Zoom memorial service last week, which was sad, but the technology is pretty superior. And we have one event, which is a webinar that we want to speak about right now. Grace, can you give us the info about that? Yeah, definitely. So Dr. Greger from How Not to Die and the How Not to Die podcast is bringing up a webinar on April 8th. So if you want to be a part of that, registry ends on April 3rd, but it will be available afterwards and posted, um, a a summary will be posted afterwards on nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Greger is very well known in the vegan community, um, but he'll be offering tips for respiratory health, hand hygiene, the use of masks and ways to DIY sanitizer solution, which is quite interesting. That webinar is called How Not to Die in a Pandemic, and there is a suggested $15 donation which goes to the charity nutritionfacts.org. There are also going to be a few other podcasts about COVID. There are Big Fat Vegan Radio Um, And then PCRM also have podcasts and a plethora of others if you peruse your podcast streaming uh, services. And I'm actually going to post up both of those podcasts. I listened to Ben Strothman's Big Fat Vegan Radio pandemic-themed podcast this week. It was so well done. He spoke to a doctor who had all the info. I learned a lot, and I've got that PCRM one on my list. So watch on our Facebook page. We'll be posting that. I have also posted a link from the How Not to Die in a Pandemic webinar at the top of our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, so you can find out there more about it and how to register. We will be presenting a COVID-19 theme show next week as well, so stay tuned for that. Due to the COVID-19 outbreak, the programming schedule at Co-op Radio has been altered. You may hear repeats of old programming, pre-recorded episodes, and special broadcasts overriding certain shows. Thank you for your listenership and patience during this time, and remember to wash your hands. The COVID-19 coronavirus is spreading to more countries globally. While there are still only a small number of cases in Canada, it is important to be prepared. COVID-19 symptoms can mimic the flu and include fever, cough, and difficulty breathing. Encourage those who are sick or showing symptoms to stay home and self-isolate, or to seek medical attention. Wash hands frequently for 20 seconds with soap and water, or disinfect with an alcohol-based hand rub. Avoid touching eyes, mouth, and nose. Practice good respiratory etiquette. Cover your coughs and sneezes with your arm or use a tissue. Clean regularly used surfaces and objects like countertops, doorknobs, and children's toys. Maintain social distance. Stay at least two meters away from someone who is coughing or sneezing. Instead of a handshake, use a wave or another greeting. For more up-to-date information on COVID-19, check reliable sources like your local health authority, the Public Health Agency of Canada, or the World Health Organization. So moving on, we want to speak about this week. It's the seventh year anniversary of the death of Bao Ming Cheng, who was a former slaughterhouse worker at the Hallmark Chicken Plant on Pandora Street here in Vancouver. Mr. Cheng suffered from heart failure after working a 13-hour shift and 70-hour work weeks in the slaughterhouse. And today we have our guest co-host Megan Beatty here today, who is the founder and organizer of Vancouver Chicken Save, 
to speak to us more about what happened seven years ago and what continues to happen at the Hallmark Chicken Slaughterhouse these days. There wasn't ever much information around Mal, but he was, um, because a couple of years after he died, his family sued Hallmark claiming um, negligence. But uh, it doesn't, I've, I've looked and I don't think anything came of it, uh, unfortunately. And he was only 42. He left behind his wife and four children and he had immigrated to Canada in the early 2000s from China. He did not speak English and had little education. And that is unfortunately the pretty pretty standard for any slaughterhouse workers. And yeah, he was working 13-hour days. That's pretty much the norm. And 70-hour weeks, that's also the norm, just overworking these workers and they do repetitive and strenuous labor which is really bad for your body like and we all know how filthy it is in there we don't all know you and i know we've been there why don't you explain for our listeners well for example when we've been at vigils at hallmark slaughterhouse at 10 20 a.m they have a break and so we see all the workers coming from uh, inside and walking across the alleyway. And they've got boots on, hard hats, huge overalls and like aprons and gloves. And then as well, to top it off, they have um, a lot of them and masks, of course. And a lot of them have like paper towel underneath their hard hat to protect their neck and chin and like sides of their heads and so the inside of the place is just filthy water body parts everywhere and it's really like fast paced because of course this is for profit right the more chickens that they hang up onto the shackles the they just need to go 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 and just everything about it is unhealthy and like human rights violations all over the place, but these are folks that don't really have any other option. Bao didn't speak English, he didn't have much of an education, and so he didn't have any other options for where to work. And this is just the standard, pretty much. And I also found out that another worker actually died a year after he did, under kind of the same circumstances. There was no information about him or his name or anything like that. But yeah, it's it's just all really messed up, what, what the folks go through. You speak about illegal workers, which Justin in our next interview speaks about as well. A lot of uh, migrant workers who are undocumented get these jobs because who wants to work in a slaughterhouse? Yeah. I was just going to add to that. If you go to Hallmark's website or even just Work Canada, they do this systematically. They'll let people come here on work visas just to work in slaughterhouses. So they immigrate here and have, um, you know, no health care, actually, as um, mm -hmm. as non-citizen art students. And so there's a high rate of unreported injuries in these kinds of jobs. And that's part of the reason that it is promoted in both Canada and the U.S. They'll bring in immigrants and ship them out after a year so that there are basically less risk for these kinds of lawsuits where people are suing because of negligence. They want people to not be able to speak English. They want people to not know or have any rights within the Canadian government. 
Um, yeah, and I'm just reading here, but in the article it says Chang worked <laughs> for minimum wage and was paid 1.5 times that for the time he worked in excess of 40 hours. Um, he had no real choice but to work at the Hallmark Chicken Factory, and he worked there for seven years. During four of those years, his job was to haul chicken carcasses off a conveyor belt and hang them on hooks above his head. You know, this is the repetitive and strenuous labor that that he was doing, and he did have a pre-existing heart condition, which caused him to have high blood pressure and required management with med medication. But his medical condition was not immediately life-threatening, but with him doing this work, it just exacerbated things, of course. And Hallmark and these industries really exploit these workers. No one is supposed to, I think, work 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, whatever it might be, especially when it's this kind of labor. Megan, you, I guess, before this COVID crisis, you and Vancouver Chicken Save have been going down to the chicken slaughterhouse at Hallmark on the corner of Hastings and Commercial, correct? And yep. I always yep. say, if, if you drive past that area, you're going to be smelling death, as I mm -hmm. often would when our radio station was located past there every Friday. I would smell that. It was, it was, it's a putrid, putrid smell. And people around there, I think, are familiar with what that smell is. But if you look at the building, it looks pretty nondescript. It's just this big square building that fills up the whole block. We used to, I've gone with you several times before, we used to be able to have access to the back alley there in which we would be able to take video footage of exactly what's happening to these chickens being smushed into crates and being processed. And I know you've had conversations with slaughterhouse workers. Can you tell us about some experiences that you'd like to share from your from your observances and your conversations? We've not really, like we've had interactions, so to speak, with the slaughterhouse, with the actual slaughterhouse workers, the folks that we're like focusing on right now, but they have been told to not, not speak to us at all. Sometimes like when we were able to be in the alley, you know, like I don't know that I, I feel safe to assume that there's no person that wants to do this work. And so they're probably just trying, you know, they're just looking down and just trying to get through their day, just do it, get through their day. And so when we were back in the alley with our signs, we were like in their face saying what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is bad, this is immoral, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we did get some aggression from them sometimes, but it's, for me, it's understandable. Like I, I get it, like it would be frustrating. And we're not going after them, we're going after the industry, right? So there would be some swearing sometimes, but it was pretty non-existent. I have had conversations with managers who are also not very open to conversing or talking or negotiating even. For a long time with the one, um, one main manager who we call Colonel Sanders, he would just like stare right through me and I try to talk to him. But then eventually he, I guess, warmed up and would start chatting. And I did have a good conversation with him once outside of the slaughterhouse after the gates went up because I was, we were sitting down on a bench and I was just like, can you help us to stop the trucks? We just want three minutes. 
And because we weren't on the property and because it had nothing to do with him anymore, he's like, you can do, you do whatever you want. I remember him saying something like he'll tell the drivers to let us have our three minutes. So that's, that's something. We've never gotten to a point where we have been able to have a conversation to be able to like rescue a chicken, like them surrender some chickens to us, hopefully someday. And there's another manager who we call Ron, who is not the same. He shakes his head at us. He gets exacerbated with us. And he's, yeah, he's not, he's not impressed. He kind of fluctuates his, you know, talking us down, like talking, not saying anything too aggressive, but just, you know, being not agreeing with what we're doing. Um, Or sometimes he's just silent. But unfortunately, right now, because of the coronavirus, we're not holding vigils, Vancouver Chicken Save, I think all of the save groups in BC, at least, are not holding any kind of outdoor any kind of events in person events there's of course lots of online campaigns and things then we'll be focusing on online stuff but right now because of this virus we're wanting to make sure everyone is safe it's really quite difficult because I think sometime soon the tarps will be up so we would be able to go and stop the trucks and bear witness but it's just not a responsible thing to do until all of this has passed. So, Megan, can you tell our listeners, I know we've spoken about it on the show before, but as a reminder, can you share with our listeners how they can see the video footage and what happens in that area? You've captured many, many, many images that I've seen you post over the years. You've been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. And can you direct us to your social channels? We're on Facebook and Instagram, Vancouver Chicken Save. And yeah, we have lots of um, video footage of bearing witness. So be, you know, trigger warning some of the images. It's quite heartbreaking, obviously. And as well, there are lots of photos of, because part of the vigils are um, just holding signs out front of the slaughterhouse, like you were saying before, how like nondescript it is. So we're out front just waving to waving to passersby and we get honks. And it's really interesting, the juxtaposition of how community-based and social and like positive that part of the vigil is when we are literally right there, right behind us is where the slaughtering and all of this is happening. But there's so much love and so much camaraderie and kindness among us when we're standing on the road there with our signs. It's really hopeful. And that's definitely where I've met a lot of new activists come because it's kind of a safe place where, you know, you don't have to engage with any meat eaters, really, like an outreach, and you can just hang out with some people and meet some new people. So it's really a wonderful, wonderful event. I'm really happy to be a part of it. So connect with Megan on the Vancouver Chicken Safe social media channels to be informed of when the vigils will start happening again. Yeah. For our feature interview today, we have an incredible story from behind the lines of industrial animal farming as we have seldom heard it before. Justin Reinick joins us on today's show. He is a former worker in the hog and chicken farming industries in Canada. 
now turned not only vegan, but a dedicated animal rights activist. Based in Steinbach, Manitoba, Justin now devotes his life to animal advocacy on the front lines of liberation instead of on the slaughter lines of death. He is here on today's show to share with us a behind-the-scenes story of what it is like to be a farm worker raising and slaughtering tens of thousands of animals every day, and why he decided to change his life to not only stop harming these sentient creatures, but to fight for their lives and for peace and for a better world. Hello, Justin, and welcome to the Animal Voices radio show. Hi. Well, please start by telling us about you. What was life like for you growing up? How did you grow up eating? And why did you start working on an industrialized hog farm when you were 16 years old? Uh, so I got in the industry mainly because uh, I didn't have uh, education uh, to get me a better job, paying job. So uh, I also dropped out of school at 16. Um, uh, various things happened in my childhood. My mom had abandoned me and I didn't know my dad. So I ended up living with my grandpa growing up and my grandma. And um, once I was 16, you know, things I kind of was getting into a little bit of trouble and everything. And they were kind of having a hard time raising me. So I ended up to go stay with my aunt outside of Winnipeg by Hamiota, Manitoba. And um, yeah, my aunt uh, was kind of getting tired of having me sitting around. And she knew a manager of a hog farm in the area and, uh, you know, uh, got me a job there. And I started out washing barns. And, um, yeah, it's kind of what started me out in the trade. You held a variety of positions in your employment at the hog farm in Hamiota, Manitoba from ages 17 to 22. And just to put things into perspective, you are age 32 now, right? You did everything from breeding and insemination to working in the farrowing and birthing areas to castrating baby piglets to working in the finishing barns when it was time to send the pigs to slaughter. I would say you have an absolute knowledge of what the pig or hog farming industry entails in Canada with most of these practices being standardized around the world. You really have ran the gamut of taking on all of the roles that are available in such a facility. So when you think back to those days as a hog farmer, as a boy and a young man, what memories vividly come back to you? Uh, some of the, you know, harder things that I remember, um, washing barns wasn't bad. Uh, once I, I got offered another position, so I ended up going um, out by Steinbeck area to work, and that's when things kind of got real. Uh, my next job was a uh, boar stud, so that was collecting semen. So, um, you know, they, the offer was, you know, go work at a salary position, um, which sounded really good as soon as I heard that at 17, right. And making upwards of $40,000 plus bonuses. And I just was like, okay. And, um, didn't really think about what it was at the boar stud. Uh, but that entails collecting semen from the boars. So, um, obviously at first I was kind of like, okay, this is kind of different. And knew I was going to be getting paid. So I was like, okay. So I went in there with an open mind and, you know, you know, as the belief of you're feeding people and, you know, this is, you know, that's what we're taught. And, you know, farming is for food and animals are for food. We're taught that indoctrinated right from childbirth, right? To eat animals, especially in our generations. And, uh, yeah, so I felt okay with collecting semen at the time for, from, uh, from the animals, especially for the money, because I needed a job. And uh, so I kind of just 
you know, went into it. And so, yeah, that basically an animal just jumps onto a dummy and you got to get into a pen with a six to 700 pound animal, uh, male animal, uh, and you have to sit down beside him for, for a while and collect semen from him. So, uh, that was what it started out with. So uh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, pretty interesting job you have to direct his penis is that true yeah yeah you definitely do you have to um uh he'll start doing his business on the dummy right and uh you have to catch and basically receive and then pull away and then put it into it's almost like a slurpee cup and fill up a slurpee cup full of uh semen and they ejaculate for about 20 minutes so basically you know in, in my eyes when you're sitting there and watching it for the first time i was like so you want me to sit here hold that and you're going to pay me. So I mean, at the time I was thinking it's not a bad idea. Right. And especially being a, you know, 17 and not no other choice. I mean, what are we going to do pump gas? So, um, yeah, I said, yeah. And yeah, you just sit down and you do it. So there's a, there's a money incentive to it. Right. So when I think back and look on it, I kind of feel like a, like almost like a man, like a, like a, like a, like a horror, basically, I guess you could say to the animals, I don't know how to say it nicely. I laugh about it now, but I mean, that's, that is how I feel, right? Like you're almost prostituting yourself out to animals um, for money. Just for people who think that animal farming is one of the reasons why I eat animals is because it's natural. Well, we're just getting into it right now. And to start with, you need some semen and that's not very natural, is it? No, no. So I want to talk about artificial insemination, since you also did that in the hog farm. What is it like to do artificial insemination in the hog farming industry? So artificial insemination, that's where after we collect that semen, it'll get processed in a lab and they'll take that semen and they'll make a bunch more bottles out of it with food and extender and all these laboratory things that they do to it. So once again, not natural. Um, and they'll make it live for seven days in a refrigerator, up to seven days. And so then it'll be driven out to the barns uh, and delivered, and then we'll 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 receive it. So in the morning, when you do your walkthroughs in the barns, you uh, have to get every animal up when they're eating. And as you're getting every animal up while they're eating, you're you're looking at signs for them coming into heat and you know different things, um, you know, uh, not wanting to eat or discharge on their vaginas and different things that you look for yeah which you're basically just looking for the menstrual cycle to have before it happens right so you can catch it and impregnate so as you're doing that walkthrough you look for your breeding animals and you see who's in heat and after they've eaten we will get our uh, breeding boar so he's like a he's a boar that just gets them excited right so he walks in front of the the animals and um when they're in heat they're like a like a cat so like a, a sow, she'll get hard and she won't want to move and she'll start foaming at the mouth and her ears will be pointy. And so we'll know that she's ready and then we'll make that a call and then we'll take a, you know, about a two foot rod with a foam end on it and we'll walk up behind her and we'll, we'll just shove it inside of her without asking. And, you know, we'll lock it in place and then we'll put the semen bottle on top and then, um, the way I was taught, because we were taught in like uh, not smaller barns, but with decent amount of people, would be to uh, sit on the sow for the first little while for to get her to suck the semen inside. So you know you have to simulate the bore on top of her. So in order to do that, you sit on her backwards, and then you'd rub her with your leg. And um, some guys would even talk about grunting and groaning to them, which I've done to kind of make them simulate that animal on top of them it'll start to get sucked inside and then that's when you know you have a good conception so then we would tape it to the back of the animal and move on to the next one so 
not natural. Uh, and all the whole time this animal is in a cage uh, by herself, like a single crate, right? So it's there's no space for her to move. She can't turn. She can't spin around. You definitely wouldn't want her to either. No. Um, and yeah, exactly, right? And also if these animals are, um, a lot of these animals when they're first generation, like the first year breeding, they will be virgins, right? So it, um, because we're breeding them at six months old, there's a lot of, uh, it's re really resistant and damaging. And also when they give birth at such a young age, um, they can have complications because their parts are so small still. Um, and that's where it comes into play with helping them with the farrowing department, which we'll talk about later. So yeah, we just basically go through them there. And then also the other thing with breeding is the new stock too that we get in at two, three months old. Um, you have to, uh, you have to get them used to you, right? Because they're going to be scared of you, right? The, they've been taken from their mother. They're only two months old. So they're in a quarantine room. And at the end of every day, we sit in those rooms and we just sit on the floor and we just let them smell us and we talk to them and we treat them like, like dogs or cats, right? We, we pet them and we want them to get used to us. So when we do go to breed them, they're not scared of us. So we're basically just breaking their trust right from that point on. Justin, I encountered those two to three month old piglets when I, in quotes, visited the Excelsior hog farm last year, just about a year ago in April 2019. And I have to say that those young pigs at that age, they are at the age where they're so sweet. They are so playful. So curious. Yes. They want to be friends with you because they are just like dogs. And... I want to say as well that what you're telling us is information that I think that most Canadians, most people around the world just don't know about, that they don't know that these are sentient beings who want to play. They want to live out their lives. They're young, they're babies, they're innocents. And from what you're telling us, this is a story that just goes on behind the scenes, whereas Canadian citizens and global citizens need to know and they have a right to know how their food gets through the food supply onto their plate from the grocery store and if they agree with this process which as you're showing us already is so far from the natural as they might believe it to be you are listening to animal voices on vancouver's co-op radio 100.5 fm cfro 100 percent listener sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded coast salish territories so we were just talking about the baby piglets they're two to three months old and they're at the age where they're just a couple of feet long. They're the most adorable and engaging and curious little creatures. And you're there to basically make them comfortable and make them make them start getting used to humans so that basically you can betray them after, right? What was that like for you when you were doing that, first of all? One, as a as a worker that's bound into this industry as a young man, and I imagine made to desensitize yourself and then made to do a job that would undo the desensitization because your employers are saying, go play with these piglets. What was that like for you? Is that a total mind F-U-C-K for you? Like, what is that like? Uh, at the, well, yeah, it was in a sense because, I mean, I'd bring them apples or we'd, you know, I'd treat them 
you know, like other animals, but you know, the connection wasn't there because, um, you know, we're just, I just feel like I, I, I kind of knew what it was and like, especially just being your average Canadian kid. I mean, I went fishing, hunting, camping growing up. Right. So, I mean, I understood that we had to kill things to eat them because I didn't think there was a better way. So you would so, gr- I mean, you would grow up eating meat is what I was wondering oh, yeah. before. Just like normal, yes, yes. normal people. Oh yeah, I grew up here. Yeah, typical yeah. Canadian kid. You know, I was in Boy Scouts forever, went camping, ca- hunting, you know, went hunting with my grandpa growing up from a young age. You know, I think you know, I went hunting first time 10 years old, I remember, and bird hunting, goose hunting. Um, and then we went deer hunting a little later on, you know. Um, so, you know, I... I done it all right so for me i understood that we and and also in my my grandpa was a his dad was a game warden in germany you know going into family history so like i that's how i was raised right so i was raised to believe that was what we ate and you know it's funny even to this day my grandpa lives with us um he's vegan with us pretty much probably 90 percent there um probably just some things he's eating without realizing it um but, you know, he's even blown away. I mean, when we broke uh, breast milk to him, like, he didn't talk to us for three days. And he lives in the house with us. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean so. you broke breast milk? You talked to him. You gave him uh, an education about breast milk? Yeah, what dairy was, right? <laughs> okay. And he's like, no. <laughs> well, dairy is for baby cows. Is that what you told him? Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we don't, you know, it's got nothing good in it for us. And I mean, I was in the got milk area. We were, it was milk was like poured down our throats in the nineties. Right. It was handed to us for yeah. free, basically. In the school. milk run, were you part of the milk run? Yeah. 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 Well, the milk run or the yeah. milk challenge, like all of that stuff. Right. Um, you know, so kind of off topic there. Yeah. But, uh, we'll get back but, into it. So we were talking about, um, you were being a boar stud and you were explaining the artificial insemination process and then you yeah. were ex- explaining getting yourself acclimated with the young two to three month old piglets in the barn so that they would be used to you handling, touching them when basically you were artificially inseminating, inseminating them. Inseminating them shortly after. Yeah, and I imagine that's against their will. They're not asking you to please inseminate me and make me pregnant. No, they were in a big open room before and, you know, I was letting them walk around and this guy was sitting down giving me treats and then all of a sudden I'm put in the single crate for the rest of my life right and then being basically uh, raped over and over again and used until I'm of no use right so like now looking back on it it bothers me a lot because now I understand the whole process and now I know that there's no reason to be eating animals like I've been surviving and thriving and especially being a bricklayer like you know I, I I I do a physical job and I'm 100% 100% sure I could continue doing my job as being vegan, right? And because it's just proven that you can get all the protein and energy you need. So, you know, now it really bothers me what I did before. And that's why I speak up on it so much because I feel like it's, you know, I live those experiences for a reason to share them with somebody. So basically, when I was listening today earlier to a talk that you had given previously about the gestation and farrowing areas of the pig farm, well, that's exactly where I was located in the gestation room during the action on April the 28th. And we spent about six hours in that gestation room. So I can say I I really got to know it well. And I really identified with everything that you was describing. It's exactly how it was like there for me. Yeah. So can you tell us more about what happens in gestation and in the farrowing area at pig farms? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So like, um, like gestation is in, in the farming world is still considered the breeder's responsibility. So, um, so as a breeder, once we're done breeding the animal, we would wait 30 days and then we would uh, preg check them with an ultrasound preg check machine, same one that they use in the hospitals. If they are confirmed pregnant, then they will be moved into the gestation area to spend their next um, two and a half months-ish. And then those gestation areas are, the industry likes to tell you there's lots of group pens. In the barns that I've always worked in, there was no group pens. The group pens that were there were for sick animals. Uh, usually there was six at the front of every row and the rest were stalls. Uh, what we were always told in the farms when I was working was new barns would get the, these, these, these pens that they so-called say they're switching to. Um, but in Manitoba, that's never happened as far as I know. Even when I still talk to people who had worked in the industry, they were still not switching. Um, it was still single pens. So they would spend basically the entire two and a half months in a pen, um, pregnant, not being able to move around, spin, or do anything besides stand up. And that's part of the breeder's responsibility every morning to make sure every animal stands up so that they don't have injuries. And that's their only time to stand up is once in the morning when they eat. And we would use a cane a plastic cane or a shaker and slap them on the backs and we would make sure every animal stood up. So once you get to that two and a half months right before gestation time where they're about to give birth uh, for farrowing, you have to pay attention to their signs because sometimes you might have some early ones and then you have to move them around sooner. And from the gestation area, they would go right back into another single crate that's called a farrowing crate where they have a little more mobility, but not really anything great. I mean, they can lie down sideways a little more comfortably, and that's about it. So, and then we're into the farrowing. Okay, and a pig can have up to 24 babies, is that correct? But that doesn't normally happen? Not normally. So I beat the average in Manitoba. So when I was in working with the skills that they told me by grunting, groaning, rubbing the side, sitting on the animal, I was able to achieve a 24 born alive. And out of those 24, 21 survived. So the average they, when I was working in the industry was 11 and a half uh, piglets per sow. And that was the average through, through most of the barns. So it varies in between, you know, 9 to 14. A lot of those averages also vary on the age of the animal. Um, the older they get, the more stillborns because the more use. Yes, and the stillborn piglets are born mummified. Is that correct? Can you tell us what that is about? Yeah, it's it's pretty gross actually. It's 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 tough. It's uh it's just like a it's just an undeveloped completely uh, baby, right? And it's it, it's just mummified. Sometimes it'll have um, placenta wrapped around it and. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty the farrowing area was the hardest area for me. Um like because it is a uh, gross is probably <laughs> it's just a tough area right and um it's weird nowadays i have a super like i have a huge gag reflex now like i have no tolerance to anything uh like whether it's ptsd or kind of remembering back to what i was involved with um but like just you know even my dog puking i can't even handle anymore like i'll <laughs> like instant gag because of the things i experienced right and having to just shut off and do it um in the facility right yeah, I can tell you that day that I entered that barn, that is, it's like was one of the most harrowing experiences in my life. And we were in the gestation area. And I'm sorry if this is difficult for you too. And I thank you for, you know, 
bringing the energy and the strength to share with us. Uh, it's hard for me to think back and it was only one day. And it's such a visceral experience. I remember walking through that gestation area. The animals were not grouped. They were in pens where they could not turn around. As you mentioned, um, I know that you, in your job, you had to make them stand up once. They basically, it was very, very difficult for them to stand up if they could. A few of them were, and then they would sit down. And they were mostly all sitting down. If one pig put her hoof into the other pig's stall, she might not like it and she would push it back because they needed their space, right? And, and also I did witness the birth of a mummified piglet. I, I at the time thought it was uh, a miscarriage. I guess you could say it was, but that pig piglet was never going to be a baby, anyways. And and um, I have photos of that if people want to see. I I'll be posting them again on our on our Facebook. But we have a lot of photos on our Facebook page on Animal Voices Vancouver, as well as a full uh, seven part video of the whole experience. And if you're interested in seeing how that <laughs> played down last year, including us getting arrested. I was watching. Yeah, so. I wanted to actually, yeah, I wanted to actually join, uh, be out there and join with you guys, but it was not at the time. We were, we had okay. plans to go to Toronto for the Animal Liberation Conference in Toronto, and the Animal Rights March. Yeah. So it didn't work out. But yeah, I, I watched the whole thing on Instagram. So I was there with you guys. Oh, and then just a question I have about those gestation barns too, just because, you know, when I was in there, it was for the first time and I'm like, okay, I've read about some of this, but I still have questions. What is the painting for? All the, all the pigs are spray painted mm -hmm. in different colors. Can you explain that? So every barn has its own system on that. So it's hard. Uh, I can't remember what the paint of those pigs looked like. I'd have to look back and look on the video. Um, a lot of it has to do with um, when they're going to be ready to go into, uh, like, into the farrowing crates. If sometimes, like, we'll paint the ones that we think are sooner, they go in a little bit sooner. Um, I know we paint them right away when they're pregnant too. Like that, that's a big way of identifying on the animals. So, um, the ones that you're going to be selecting for finishing or pregnant or or going into the farrowing, um, that or calls too. If um, if she was uh, violent with her piglets or violent with the workers or like some sows intentionally will kill and eat their own piglets so they'll we'll let them have their litter and then we'll mark them so we know and then she'll be called um because they you know they they're in a lot of pain when they give birth too i mean that's what i think it is why they attack their piglets because we make them give birth at such a young age it's an unpleasant experience and their piglets are taken away i mean right. she hates them right so i mean those are some different examples of why they might paint um there's a lot of different reasons Right. And speaking of the cannibalization, that was documented and found at this Excelsior hog farm in weeks and months before, which yep. that footage was released to the media. So if people don't believe that, it's on camera and it's been, it's been televised. It happens in every farm from babies to big pigs to pigs trying to eat, even attack at, uh, the workers. Um, yeah, it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's it happens in every farm. There's uh, or even finishing areas too. We'll talk about the finishing areas, and that's one of the biggest things. The finishing areas we have to look out for half-eaten animals in the crates mm -hmm. and the pens. So as consumers, I'm sure these people don't realize the pigs are eating other pigs, and then they're eating them. So I mean, it's yeah, it's crazy. But we'll talk about finishing after. <laughs>
Yeah, it's basically like it's a concentration camp in this yeah. gestation room yes. that I was in. It's row after row after row. I counted maybe about 200 pigs in there. And that that I think was just like one little area because I believe this barn housed thousands and thousands, yep. sorry, separate barns as yep. well. And another question I have, like there were a lot of sick pigs in this area. And didn't seem like they were being treated because we demanded that a veterinarian come and specifically look at a pig that was lying in a pool of her own blood. Yeah, I she had that. so yeah, she had some spray paint sprinted on the wound, and I was told that that's actually with some kind of disinfectant. Yep. Does, does that sound right? Yeah, it's to an you? antibacterial spray. It's a blue spray. It's uh, it's really it's really good actually for for healing up stuff. Um, yeah. It's a it's a medicin antibacterial and antibiotic too, if I remember right. And we used to use that stuff a lot uh, for abscesses or any kind of injuries or the bed sores they get on their sides from laying down. But when I was in the boar stud, we used it all the time because the boars were worth so much money and they made so much money. Sows, it was if if they needed it. Like a lot of the barns like to spend their own medical areas in their own ways. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they only have so much money for medical supplies. So, so I worked, basically what I'm saying is some farms I worked in had it for all animals, some only for certain animals. It, it shows that the workers know something's wrong and they do feel some sort of something connection that they have to treat, right? So we have to always remember the workers aren't veterinarians. They're not doctors. They haven't been trained in any medicine. So they're making an assessment and, and saying there's an injury there and I feel bad for that animal and I am going to treat it, you know? So, I mean... It's it's kind of the mind the mind thing going on with the worker that people don't think about you know like right as a worker it's something I don't didn't think about till now or like till later on in life and as a non vet it wasn't really your responsibility to make sure that the you know the sick and injured pigs I would imagine were getting the proper treatment that they were supposed to get because each farm has a veterinarian and. We called upon, we actually had the farm's vet and a more non-biased vet come mm -hmm. to the farm. I didn't see the non-biased vet, but they took us all out of the room while he went to expect. And he actually said that there was nothing wrong in that barn and that everything was all good. And trust me, it wasn't good yeah. because I won't get into it now, but you no, can no. see the pictures. You can see the videos. <laughs> what were your observations of watching on Instagram? Can I ask that you that? That was probably one of the... I'm not going to say, like, I wouldn't, I don't like to say it, but it's probably one of the more, when you guys were there, it was probably one of the more cleaner barns I've seen. Um, like I, like the walls were like, I the barns I've worked in here. There's cobwebs there. They're, they've never been washed. Um, everyone has their different ways of doing it, but like the conditions of the animals is what, what more what I noticed on that farm. Um, and the condition of the building was, 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 was fair, I would say. Um, but it was more like the animals is what I saw there. With, with that. Right, you, you know, you know, they had about five days to clean up, right? And the first and that's what thing I that happened because yeah. from what I saw is it looked really clean because the footage of the undercover footage is is night and day difference. You, you can see like the feeders are like uh, the feeders are cleaner in the footage when you guys were there. Like, you know, the smell would have been ten times worse, but you know, five days before. I can't imagine the smell being 10 times worse and we will get into that. And, and having said that, because the farm had had about five days notice because the investigation undercover footage from months before hitting yeah. cameras had broken to the media earlier before that. And so they knew the SPCA was coming. So they cleaned up. What was, where, where did they put all the dead bodies of all the cannibalized pigs and all the lame pigs? They put them in the, in the dumpsters at the beginning yep. of the biohazard area, which we 
crossed, and we got footage of that. So yeah, you saw all the deads, was, like an unusual yeah, uh, high number of deads out of nowhere, right? Like, let's quickly clean up everything, you know, because the, they like to keep the animals alive as long as possible to see if they can make it for slaughter, whether it's slaughter for consumption for consumers or maybe for one of the workers or you know what I mean like these are things if the animal wasn't hurt that bad maybe it won't go to market but the owner might keep it for himself you know um these are things that happen that's why sometimes they keep these sicker animals sometimes if they're not too sick right depending on what it is right if it's lameness I've seen them keep animals lame forever and where I want to get rid of them and they won't get rid of them um, right yeah so moving on, I wanted to speak about the farrowing part of the whole process that is the mother pigs giving birth. As I understand, a mother pig can give birth to up to 24 babies. What was it like working in that area of the farm? Or 30, 38 to some of the rooms I had too, where you have 38 sows in one room giving birth. So you got to take and it gets crazy, too, when you have that many animals and you're taking care of them all at the same time. That's because you induce them all to have labor when you get to work. So please exactly. tell us about that. Yeah. So in the gestation, once we know they're ready, we'll um, bring them into the farrowing um, probably about a week before we, they want to give birth. Because we really want them to give birth in the farrowing area, not the gestation area. Um, because if they give birth in the gestation area, that's not a clean area. Uh, the farrowing area is more one of the probably cleaner areas in the barn. It gets washed and disinfected every 30 days. They put lime in the pits to kill everything. It's generally your cleanest room in the barn. You want it to be like a birthing area in a hospital so you have the best chance because that's where your diseases will start. And if you get a disease in your birthing area, you lose everything. And so we bring them in that week before. And as we have those cards um, that they had and the numbers, probably two on the back might have had something to do about who's coming in birth first. And as we know where they're coming, we will induce them with um, inducing medicine. So the same medicine they would use in the hospital to induce a woman into labor, we would use on the sow. And only the guys were allowed to use it unless the girl knew she wasn't trying to get pregnant because it would stop her. It would mess up your cycles if she just got it on her skin. So or it would cause an abortion too. like it was like women weren't really, were really told not to even handle the medicine. Um, you know, you got to be super careful because, um, you, you know, you don't want to lose your baby just because you're doing this, right? Um, so, yeah, we would induce them so that when we come into work the next morning, they're all giving birth relatively the same time so that we can assist them. Because you got about 20 minutes during the birthing procedure where um, if an animal gets stuck, that it, it, if you don't help it, they'll overheat and then they'll all die. Everybody will die, right? You'll lose all the babies. You'll lose the sow. As they're giving birth, if one gets stuck, you have to reach in their shoulder deep with like a with a shoulder glove, I guess you would call it. Um, and you go in there and you have to grab them a certain way. So you'd want to hook them um, by their jaws and pull by the neck. That was the strongest part. And then um, pull the babies out if they were stuck. So, you know, depending on how many, that's how you'd have to do it. And it's super dangerous too because, you know, if the sour were to get up, you could get your arm stuck in there. But generally she doesn't get up during that time when you're doing that but it's something to always be careful about that's what we were always told because you could get your arm crushed mm -hmm. uh, and you're at this time you're about a 17 year old uh, shining 18. child 18 oh 18 yeah. okay you're an 18 year old young person child with no medical training just not even finished high school hey hey justin <laughs> just stick your arm up you're gonna be giving birth exactly exactly so i mean it's quite the procedure to be taught that age and same thing with the borstead too i mean 
something, you know, not everybody does. Um, but yeah, anyway, so birthing, uh, and then, so after we give birth and you get all the piglets out and they're all survived, um, whoever's alive is alive. If there are, um, some that are like runts and just not viable right from the start, we do the thump right there and we just get rid of them. Basically you would just take the piglet by the back of its legs and smash it on the concrete right, right in front of your, right in front of the sow and the mother in some instances. Right. Um, uh, just because they're too small or is there something wrong with them? We would just, we wouldn't put them through anything else. We just do it right there in the worker's eyes. That was the best thing, but you know, in all, you know, it shouldn't be happening in general at the whole thing. Um, so how I feel about it now. Right. Uh, but, and then, so once they're all alive, um, you move on to your next one, you get everybody all alive. Um, and then after a day, you, the next day we'll start doing the castrating and tail clipping and teeth clipping two injections in each side, an iron and a anti-inflammatory injection. And then, um, if it's a boy, if it's unlucky to be a boy, uh, with no medical experience, I'll take a scalpel and hang it upside down by its back legs, make its testicles stick out and then make two incisions with a scalpel and then grab with my, my, um, my thumb and my uh, pointer finger and kind of a clamping motion and, uh, just grab the testicles and pull them out. Um, generally you wouldn't want to use gloves cause the gloves, it's too slippery and you won't get a good pull. And if you don't pull them out nicely, you can pull their intestines out with them. And then you have to put their intestines back in and, um, sometimes even perform an operation on them to push them back in and sew them back up with no medical experience, no training. Um, just your average barn worker, no different than, you know, me or you. And, uh, you know, the next procedure is that the tail cutting. So with the tail cutting, you have a pair of garden shears, like pruning shears, and you'll have a little slot cut on them and you'll have them sitting on a hot torch and you'll heat that torch up red hot and then you'll cut the tail off with the hot uh, shears and it'll cauterize the wound right away uh, for the tail so it stops bleeding. Not all the time does it stop it right away, but it helps. And the reason they do that is to stop cannibalizing um, because that's something the piglets will want to do because they have nothing to do. So they'll see the tails and they'll start wanting to play with them and eat them. And then before you know it, you have half a piglet missing. And um, the teeth clipping is another one. It's just a pair of wire cutters and you just stick your finger in their mouth, you know, two days old, just a baby screaming. And then you make four cuts and you cut all four of their teeth. And that's another thing to stop them from scratching each other because there's nothing to do. And as they grow, their teeth will be very sharp. What happens to all these thousands of tails that you're cutting off? I'm curious. Exactly. So all this stuff just goes into the pits. So the pits are where the, it's like a sewer system in the barn. Um, and so it's where all the feces and urine and medical waste, as I would call it, which would be tails. Sometimes needles would fall in there. Uh, drugs would fall in there. Sometimes you break a vial, it runs off in there. Um, so basically all kinds of medical waste, the, the, the testicles, they, you know, we wouldn't throw them in a container to be put into bio, bio or whatever. It's just thrown into the pit. And then, so it'll be in the pits. And then, um, with these pits, what happens is they get drained off into the, those fields that the poo fields that hold all the manure. And then every fall, those manure fields will get drained onto farmers fields as fertilizer. And, you know, depending on how much rain we have, all this stuff just ends up in our waterways, no matter what, because, you know, we don't, you know, when you're just spraying straight raw sewage onto a field, there's bound to be runoff. 
So, I mean, all this medical waste ends up onto our fields, needles. Uh, we had complaints from farmers where they had too many needles in the fields. Like they would get out of their tractor and they'd say needle, see needles and they'd be like, Hey, you guys, you guys got to stop throwing your needles in the pits. And you know, my response is, you know, when you're vaccinating like 2000 pigs, sometimes your needles fall. Sometimes you drop the whole needle container. I mean, these, these barns are just basically one side's a sewer and then there's a metal concrete thing and the other side's a sewer. So it's very easy for a lot of stuff just to end up into our, uh, you know, into our waterways and fields. From my own experiences, the the first moment that we stepped off the bus to get onto the property of Excelsior, this wasn't even, this was just at the edge of a very large property. It just stank. And that's what it smells like in the Fraser Valley and Abbotsford, actually. You, you drive in that area and you want to hold your nose and put your car windows up because it stinks. The whole community is like this. And when I was in the gestation area room, we were speaking about, you know, the slats on the ground. That's what it was. It was just, uh, we were wearing bio security hazard suits. Yep. It was just poo and yep. pee everywhere. As That's I mentioned, the, the animals couldn't turn around. They just live in these tiny, very confined stalls. And so they have to, they can't even, they, you know, as, as I understand, pigs are normally very clean animals. They do yeah. not defecate and urinate where they want to live, mm -hmm. but they have no choice. They're just peeing and pooing. They can't do anything about it. It's going through the slats. The ground is covered in feces. That's why we were wearing spe like special yeah. protective gear. And that is basically the the whole the full farm it smells yep. like that. You can't get out of it no, out of it. Can't. And I imagine it was just permeated into your skin the whole oh, yeah. year all the years you were doing this because when I left home that day it was and I took off my I took off my suit. I had to take off every single layer of clothing on under it yep. and and tie it up in a bag and put it in my car trunk because I couldn't be near it until I was able to launder it. And that, for people who don't understand, it's just not, it's not healthy. This is what our communities are breathing into. You spoke of the runoff. They're often called pig lagoons, right? If you look on a Google satellite map at any farm, any hog farm, you will see the lagoons that are situated outside the farms and sometimes they can be as big as football fields and that is that is what's holding the runoff that goes into our waterways and you're doing a lot of vaccines as well right that goes into that vaccines and then also with the farrowing rooms at the end of the cycle after we've done all this stuff we will intensively wash that room with a heavy degreaser that's mixed pretty strong generally because you as the as a person who washes the barn i want the stuck on poo and diarrhea and all this stuff and afterbirth to come off easy. So the more degreasers I use, the easier it comes off. Now, if you can get away with using lots, you do because it makes your job a little easier as a washer. Um, so that's one chemical. And then we would use right away a, a disinfectant. Um, and that has to be mixed a certain way to disinfect all the surfaces in the room. So once you do that, you would, um, disinfect the whole room and then so that's another chemical that's ending up in this pit and then the first thing we would do when we wash is here in manitoba anyways is what we would take is straight bags of lime and open them up and then drag them along those slats so that all the lime powder falls in and we all know what lime is right it's a decomposer you know we all know you know people can decompose anything with lime bodies anything um so 
we put that in the pits and then the washer has to go in and wash a room with this lime powder and everything. So not only is it a hazard to our health, all this lime powder and sewage and manure and medical waste all flows into the, the slough lagoon. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into those things. And, and this happens every month. So, you know, if we go over a whole 12 month cycle, right, you can just imagine the amount of chemicals that is actually added to the feces and urine and stuff. And just for the people living in the communities there, what is it like for them? Because you, you were in those communities. Can you tell us what it is like to have to breathe in all this toxicity, a lot of ammonia from all yep. the feces and the urine. What is that like? So here, here in Manitoba, it's not like it, we, it's close. Uh, some days, like in my town here, some days I have a pig farm on the front. If it's blowing the right way, we can smell it. Um, it's, it's an unpleasant smell, right? We also have a chicken barn on the other side of our town. So if it's blowing from one side, we'll smell the chicken barn. Uh, so that's a, that's a different smell, more of a high ammonia smell. Um, they're all unpleasant. It's hard to put a rate on which one's worse. <laughs> yeah. What we do know is that living in areas like this does cause respiratory issues. Oh, yeah. And lung, lung issues. And we'll get more into that later about uh, yeah. how it's affected you. Yeah. Especially so, if somebody has asthma, it was really bad for me. So. Oh, yeah. So can you tell us more about the physical health and sanitary conditions for the pigs themselves in the barn? Like, as I said, in, in visiting the Excelsior Hog Farm in Abbotsford myself last year, it was just the most crazy experience for my life. I thought I was in this alternative universe of hell. I couldn't imagine that something like this was going on. It was it was a prison camp for yep. these poor sentient beings. And, and And as I said before, the one thing I will always remember is the number one the permeating smell that you couldn't get away from you even though we were covered up face covered gloved up and the complete filth you had started to mention before about the abscesses and the foot injuries that is something that i really noticed as well mm -hmm. is because these pigs are so confined is that their limbs and their bottoms are rubbing against the bars of their little jail cells and it's causing the abscesses can you tell us more about conditions yeah like that? so yeah, abscesses can form from different ways, like constant lying down on the concrete too. Um, concrete's really bad for them. Yeah, the abscesses are super gross. Probably one of the worst things I remember. Uh, with the sows and the pig barns, like the normal breeding farrowing barns, it wasn't too, too bad. The worst place I had to deal with the abscesses actually was the boar stud because those animals were kept alive for five to seven years. And as they get older, the more abscesses they got. Some of the biggest ones I saw were about soccer ball size on the animal. And then we would have to take like a scalpel and poke it and run. <laughs> Literally. Poke it and run. Poke As a teenager, not ever medically trained. Not ever trained. Poke it and run. Because like that thing pops, it's gross. Like it's the, it's just horrible smell. Um, so that, those are bad. And then another big thing is the, the, the feet, right? The feet, because there's no hoof, hoof maintenance. Um, so as somebody who adopted a mini pig, I've kind of learned about hoof maintenance and, uh, you know, their, their hooves grow constantly. And in the barns, we would call them skis or elf shoes. We, you know, we'd make fun of it. Right. And didn't think much about it, how much pain it actually causes the animal. And the big thing is when they get longer and narrower, they'll stick in those slats. And then sometimes it'll stick in the slat and the pig is so strong, it'll rip the toenail off or the hoof nail off. And, um, and then they're just in pain from that point on, right? 
So it's, it's some of the biggest injuries are that's the biggest reason they get called and stuff like that is the foot injuries and stuff because they're on concrete all the time and they don't get exercise so they can't build up the strength to match their body weight. And um, yeah, it is a pure prison camp. Yeah, well, like Gary Urofsky says, the longest standing Holocaust, right? Um, you know, they didn't rescue the animals. <laughs> they left the animals. So, I mean, I'm a firm believer on that. Right. It's, it's, it's sad. Okay, well, let's continue. Can you tell us about the finishing area in the pig barn? Um, with the finishing area, the one thing I like to talk about is the, the slap tattooing that we do in Canada. So Canada is the only place that does slap tattooing. Um, so that, I don't know if you noticed on animals, if you notice at vigils and stuff, they'll have a barcode stamped onto their left shoulder. It, it happens the day before shipping. So the day before shipping, uh, so it's more like at vigils, if you're at a save movement vigil for pigs, you'll see sometimes a barcode on the left shoulder. So what that barcode is part of Pig Trace Canada. So it's a way to identify illnesses in a hog herd and track it from the slaughter facility back to the farm. So they implemented this back when I was working in the farms. And so the day before shipping, you have a stamp tattoo that's uh, approximately like um, three inches by uh, six inches on a mace, a big long metal rod. And you want to, and the spikes on it are about two inches long. Uh, so there's uh, six, six, six numbers, uh, two letters and four numbers. And then you uh, take an ink pail and you stand in the middle of a crate, a pen of 25 animals. And as they're running around in circles around you, you hit them as hard as you can on the left shoulder. Um, and you have to hit them as hard as you can because if you don't and the tattoo is not legible, the slaughter facility won't accept the animal and the barn won't get paid for it. So as a worker, you're told to hit them as hard as you can. Uh, I'd hit animals so hard they'd fall to the ground. And I would even feel bad that I did that. Even as a worker, not vegan or anything, I was like, oh, shit, did that one too hard. But, you know, you're trying to hit 25 animals that are running around in a circle from you as you're hitting them and hurting them. Um, for me, that was one of the, as I was a worker, one of the times where I felt, you know, besides killing them, some of the worst ways, which we'll talk about, that was probably one of the hardest things because that you could actually see the pain, the animals dropping to the ground, and and it, that that's one of the things that I uh, really want people to understand is that day before shipping, the animal is just petrified because of what he did to them, and then putting them on uh, a semi and, and taking them out of their home where they've had nothing good happen to them, and then they're getting put into that slaughter facility to get killed. That's why they're so petrified on the trucks, and it's just it's just crazy to what happens the in the last 48 hours before they're um, killed. So I just always want to speak on that because it's a, it's a, it's a scary thing that what happens to them. Cause as a worker too, you know, you're taught to be violent with animals and you know, that carries on in your life and it's, it's, yeah. you know, you have no respect for life. So can you tell us about those last 48 hours of a pig's life? Yeah. So like, it'll be the feed, the feeders will be turned off the day before shipping so that they eat all the food in the room. So whoever has to wash doesn't have to empty the feeders out by hand. So they'll already have their food shut off 12 hours before. So then they'll go eat all their food for 24 hours. Then they come to work the next day. All they'll have is water generally uh, using cattle prods and boards and stuff like that. We'll take them out of their pens and load them up onto the truck. You can just imagine different temperatures of the year. They want to go. Sometimes they don't want to go. I've had to literally like lift the back end of the animal, throw them onto the truck before. It's, it's probably one of the second most violent situation you're doing in the barn, you know, where you're very rough with the animals because they don't want to leave. If it's cold outside and foggy, fog's coming in, they really don't want to go. 
And uh, yeah, it's a it's a tough one, right? It's, that's why they're so petrified on those trucks when you look in their eyes and you know you wonder what they've gone through, right? Like, you know, that last forty eight hours is harrowing. And um, another thing too in the finisher area is as your job is to always look for the cannibalism again because these animals are free in group pens. Uh, if there's a weak one in the pen, that one will get picked on, and that's where sometimes you know you come in on the weekend and you have a half eaten animal. And um, that also happens in the finishing area, too. That's one of the more, uh, it's, that's a tough one to see, right? Like half-eaten animal and have to drag half of an animal out. Like it's, that, that, those, those are some of the harder memories that, you know, you think back on, like, whoa. This has to do with humans' desire for flesh. We have to remind everyone, this is the whole process of basically what has to happen. A lot of misery, a lot of complications, a lot of filth and unsanitary conditions for both the animals and the workers, including health conditions, needles in the ground, respiratory conditions for the people living in the area, not to mention the environmental devastation of the runoff lagoons that get sprayed into the farming communities, making citizens sick. So we'll move on from that, as you also have experience working in the chicken farming industry. How long did you spend working in the hog farming industry first? Uh, for hog farming, it was uh, five years. Okay, so that was ages 17 to 22. After five years, you decided to take a different step and work in the chicken farming industry for Dunright and to work as a chicken catcher, which I know is very difficult work. For our listeners who don't know, can you explain what a chicken catcher does in the industry, and does this apply both to broiler chickens for meat and spent hens from the egg industry? Yeah, so both industries have chicken catchers. Um, Egg-laying hens, they just don't get caught as often. Um, They have worse things done to them with the the way they breed them, which I've recently found out, which is pretty wild. Um, So there's chicken catchers for both. The hens are obviously a little bit bigger, so they don't get treated the same way as a broiler. The broiler is the way we would catch them. Um, For one, it's it's piecework. Um, you're not uh, employee of the barn, so you you know the the barn manager or owner can be removed from the actual catching and slaughtering of the animal. Um, that's what I've recently found out with some interviews and stuff. Like, well, I'm not the one catching them and killing them, so you know I'm just raising them and then selling them. You know, that's 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 how disconnected they the some of these barn uh, owners can be. It's amazing but you know they, they still you know they, I care for them I love them and I don't kill them you know it, so uh, you know so you, you're removed right so you they, that's why they have these subcontracted private chicken catchers so you can go in there you can work fast you can um, just go in there and be as rough and fast as you need to be to get the job done so we were told to carry six birds in each hand to get the full wage because it's piecework there's a certain criteria before you'll actually get the full wage so that was six birds in each hand, so 12 birds carrying and working as fast as you can to get the full wage. Um, and so basically that just meant working as fast as you can and whatever you got to do to, we would race race guys in between, to try and, you know, get to the crate first, you know, like you show initiative, that gets you more money. Um, and when you get to that crate, the crate opening is only about, you know, a foot and a half by a foot and a half square. And, you know, you're just throwing those birds in there or some have the open side crates and you're just shoving them in, you know, it's, it's very small space to be throwing 12 birds in all at once. And, um, yeah. And then especially if you have six guys all doing that at once, you can only imagine how chaotic that is. And, you know, we have to remember 
well, the people that do this are probably people, you know, that are struggling with different problems and addiction and, you know, like the, it, it takes, it takes something else extra to do a job like that throughout the night. Um, there is chicken catching during the day, but a lot of it's done at night because the birds are more docile. So it's easier to catch. So, um, yeah, it's a very physically demanding job, uh, squatting down, bending and running. And, and uh, again, uh, sometimes you're picking up these birds, their legs are getting broken. There's no feathers They're peeing, they're pooing on you. Like it's, it's rough. And you're covered in ammonia. Uh, your fingertips got, get wearing off. I had to get fingerprinted once, uh, and I, they couldn't even take fingerprints. So that's how bad it is on the worker's hands. It's a it's a tough job. My wife actually tried it with me, and she did it for three days, and it was one of the hardest things she's ever done. Now, I I understand that the chickens where you were working as for standard broiler industry chickens, they're about thirty two to thirty six days old. Basically, yep. they're baby chicks. Can you baby talk chicks. more about that? And and you spoke about the conditions of them. I've of course I've seen I've been to vigils. I've seen numerous numerous videos and photos on the trucks where. These animals are, they're just growing their feathers in, but they have a lot of area where there's no, it looks like the fed, like a lot of red. And yep. is that because the feathers haven't grown in or because they're being pulled out because of cannibalistic tendencies? But I know the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, actually says that, that they're just supposed to look like that. Yeah, they say it's their genetics. <laughs> That's what they said to, to us. To have no feathers. Yeah, to have no feathers. I mean, they, Either way, they still have the ammonia burns. Their skin's not healthy. Um, I actually have shown some of these pictures to free-run, uh, free-range chicken people, and they're appalled. They're like, "What? Like, they're like, there's no feather count. Like, there's no. They're those are unacceptable chickens to a free-range egg farmer, a free-range chicken farmer. They're they're appalled at those conditions. I'm like, as well. Then you should say something if you're appalled as a chicken farmer. You know, that's what I said to this one guy. If you think this is bad, then, you know, don't you think you have a duty to do something about it yourself? You know, it makes your industry look bad, you know. And he just looked at me like, what? You know, I didn't know what to say because I, I have a different kind of conversation with them, right? Because um, I can see from their point of view and I can see from my point of view because of where I'm at right now in my life. Yes, and we'll be getting into that. Speaking of which, as you may know, this week marks the seventh year anniversary of the death of Bao Ming Cheng, who was a worker at the Hallmark Chicken Slaughterhouse here in Vancouver. He died after working a 13-hour shift and 70-hour weeks. Please tell us what it's like to be an employee in this industry, having been both employed in the hog farming industry and the chicken farming industry. It's not a job that most, if any, people would want, I would think. And I'm interested in knowing the psychological implications of these types of jobs as well. Who are working at these jobs? Yeah, so these jobs are a lot of long hours. A lot of long hours. Uh, you know, uh, in the farming side of things, it's 12 days on, two days off. You know, there's no, no real break. I mean, two days off isn't really much of a rest when you're working 10-hour days. Um, and once again, 10 hour days, not eight hour days and, um, no overtime generally too, is something I found, uh, out of as a big thing. And if you complain, you lose your job or, you know, another thing too, is they take advantage of the uneducated, right? Um, you know, same thing with any slaughter facility or processing facility. I mean, generally people that are working there have no high school diploma. They haven't finished or they're, um, people that came from other countries to come start a new life in Canada 
and we throw them this job that's just somewhere they shouldn't be, where no one should have to be when they come to this country, right? Uh, just, uh, you know, working long hours, uh, generally over time, they always want you to work more. And if you say no, then you're not as good as an employee, so you don't get as good as hours. And, you know, if you're not that yes guy on those floors, and like when I worked in the, um, in the, on the cut floors and stuff, like, you know, if you're not willing to do every job, then you're not, you're not useful, right? So that you, uh, that's how you end up working the long hours and getting the overtime. And, you know, I hate to say it, people are drawn towards money and that, you know, that, that, you know, when you don't have a, a job that can compare for that salary, then sometimes that's how people can turn off and which can lead to mental illness and stuff too, and addiction, because you're not happy with where you are. So, I mean, there's lots of long hours and, you know, um, yeah, like countless, you know, 12 hour days I worked at the, at the, the cut plant plates there, uh, you know, they, uh, Hey, you want to work extra four hours today? You know, sure. Right. You know, like it's hard to say no sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about that. What just very quickly, what's a cut plant? I uh, really process the animal. Um, so that, you know, okay. you have the full animal that's dead and it's hanging down the line and it comes down the line and they're processing an animal every 60 seconds is what Maple Leaf was doing. And so mm-hmm. like from full animal to taking the ribs and the tenderloins and doing all that stuff, right? It's a line that never stops. Uh, when one person screws up on the line, you mess everything up, right? So it's, and you're it's using, just, you're using knives in that process. Am knives I and your hands, like tenderloins, a lot of thumbs. There's a lot of thumb injuries with some of them yeah. uh, because you're pulling the parts of the animal apart by hand um, or pulling certain parts off for different finishes. Um, a lot of knives. Uh, so there's lots of dangerous things with sharp knives, obviously, and machinery too, all kinds of crazy machinery. Um, so it's a very dangerous place. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on and you have to be paying attention um, to what you're doing. Otherwise, you could lose uh, a limb pretty easily, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, As I understand that the rate of injury in packing plants like that in slaughterhouses is quite high in Canada, comparison to just other jobs, it's it's high in that job. Well, they're trying to push so many animals a day in such a sh- time frame, right? Like, you know, like 60 seconds to think that you're processing animal every 60 seconds from start to finish is is crazy. Like how you get almost, it's hard to imagine how many people are actually standing on that line as it's coming down. And it's, it's uh, you know... And so you're very busy and, you know, it's very hard on your body and hands and they rotate you every hour or two to try and limit your wear and tear on your joints and stuff. Um, so that's why you have to do everything. Right. Can you just uh, briefly describe what are the different jobs so people can get a grasp of what it takes to actually have to process, as we're saying here, an animal from a, a full living being to a dead corpse to a piece of nice little meat that's on your plate? What did you as that cutting person have to do? Uh, I worked a lot in the specialty areas because there was a little more skill involved. So I was more of a higher skilled laborer guy. So I, I always wanted to take on new tasks. So um, I was in a lot of the cryojack area where they would uh, insta-freeze the stuff to send it to Japan and different places because in Canada here, we get a lot of uh, second-grade pork. We don't even eat the first-grade pork. They actually send that stuff overseas because it's worth so much more money. Like a pork tenderloin here in, in our grocery store that we pay 12 or $13 for is worth about two to $300 for in Japan and China. So you can see where the money comes into play. So, I mean, I, I worked in all the areas from like uh, where they split the body in half and take the ribs out. And yeah, like it's, it's hard to put it all into words because it's such a graphic situation. And so 
something that's hard to even like remember piece by piece. But yeah, it's it's yeah, lots of knives, machinery, and you know. So how do you reflect on that now? I want to know how this has all impacted your health, both physically wise and and psychologically wise. We'll start with just physical. How did these many years of work affect you? Uh, physically, it was my asthma was the biggest thing. Um, obviously, in the farms was worse than the cut plants and stuff like that. The the hog farms was the worst. I was taking my asthma medicine two, three times a day, if not more, as I needed it. Um, you know, you could wear dust masks all you want, but I mean, it still gets to your lungs. And um, so the biggest thing for me was my, my breathing. Um, in the boar stud, that was more danger with the animals. I still have a scar on my leg from where I got thrown by a boar. Um, he just picked me up and threw me with his front teeth. And, you know, I had a you know, nice little scar on my leg. Didn't need stitches or anything. But, you know, it was, it was still something I still feel to this day. Another danger, too, would be the pressure washing, too. Some of those machines are very powerful. I have a scar on my leg from that, just pressure washing my leg because they have them turned up to, like, 3,500 PSI. So that was farming. And then with the cut plant and those places, the slaughter facilities, it's knives and machinery, right? And um, automated machinery that's working like on its own, right? On pneumatics, right? So, I mean, you don't want to get stuck in those things. So like loose clothing or just not paying attention to what you're doing because the line's always moving, right? It's moving at a pretty slow pace, but it's always moving. So, you know, if you, if you get stuck to it or, you know, something gets caught, you know, you have to Everybody has to know to stop it, right? Otherwise, you're just going to go with it. They obviously give you those cut-proof gloves and stuff. They they help, but I mean, there's there's a limit to everything. They have different grades. So if, as a worker, you put on the wrong glove for the knife or machine you're using, it might not protect you. Like they had some like chainmail gloves that you had to use on some machines, and some that you know what I mean. So. You know, as a worker, if you made a mistake, you could lose your arm very quickly. Um, and coming from the fact that, you know, some of these people, do, English isn't their first language, it can be very dangerous, right? And this is why we see a lot of um, injuries, and it's it, it can be very dangerous. Talk about your hearing loss. Hearing loss. Yeah, sorry, I forgot about that one. Uh, <laughs> you didn't hear me ask that, right? That <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, hearing loss is huge, especially in the farms. Because I worked at them at such a young age, safety wasn't as big in 2004 as it is in 2020. Um, just the bottom line, like I'm a bricklayer now and safety is intense. Like there's, we have procedures, we have things we have to do. You know, we know all the decibel ranges, we know everything. But back then, here, go turn the feed system on, go walk behind the animals. And if it's too loud, it's too loud. Like that's your job. Um there is nothing that can compare to 2,500 to animals screaming at once. Like there's nothing that can, when you walk into that barn and turn the lights on and they haven't eaten yet, it is, it is, it is a sound that you'll never want to hear again. Like it's so loud, like everybody's screaming at once. And sometimes you have a feed motor issue and you'll have to go out there and, you know, and we had uh, the foam ear plugs. I do remember we had was those like really foamy ones that almost hurt to have in your ears. Like they're scratchy. So we wouldn't even wear them because they were uncomfortable, right? And being young and dumb, <laughs> that doesn't help either. You think you're invincible to everything, right? So hearing loss is huge because that's something I still suffer with, you know, to nowadays and I'll always have, right? And So what is going on in your mind as you're inseminating boars, castrating piglets, thumping piglets, catching chickens on the kill floor, 
cutting apart dead bodies. What does this do to a person mentally and, and how can you cope? I want to know what that was like for you. And you mentioned PTSD and that doesn't surprise me. So please share that with so, us, Justin. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, I, I, it's tough, right? Like it's, it's you, you witness so many different things and we didn't even get into all the different ways we killed animals on the farms too. And, you know, it's something you, you know, like, as somebody who, like I said, he was a typical Canadian who went hunting and shot animals and killed them. When you see them suffer in the farms or in these other things, it's it's tough. And um, but you're told it's okay. So yeah, it's a it's a real it's like like we in the one farm I worked at, we were told to hang the pigs. Like if it was like under a hundred pounds, we were told to hang them, opposed to bolt guns or um, like you're not allowed to euthanasia. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, but so a lot of it's bolt guns and knives uh, in the heart. But yeah, like so, you, it's something you think about after that. I mean, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be able to say that I've only the only way I haven't seen an animal die is by burning to death. You know, right? <laughs> That's you know, so, I've seen an animal drowned. I've seen you know, I've seen because if they fall through the pits, they can end up in the poo pits, and you ain't getting them out. I mean, what are you going to do? Take every animal out? Take the floor out? Like it's not happening, right? Like so, I've seen them drowned. I've seen them you know, uh, get buried in feed. Like uh, we've had feed motors break and you just have a sow's head sticking out of feed. The whole pit fills up with like, you know, like hanging and knives. And the, the big thing in the boar stud, we did electrocution. Um, so we had booster cables hooked up to a 220 wall plug. And so it was tail to ear and we'd plug it in and do it for like five minutes. The one animal I'll still never forget to this day, like literally stood there and took it and was drooling. And, you know, we ended up uh, shooting him five times also in the head. That didn't work. And then the one guy ended up stabbing him a bunch of times in the in the heart, you know, all while I was snaring him and holding him. Obviously not during the electrocution, but I mean, you know, like it's 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 something you have to live with and think about, you know. And I, you know, now being a vegan and somebody who thinks about like compassion and, you know, ethics and stuff like that I just don't see where it was right and I mean to me compassion is euthanasia done by a vet with the medicine right I mean just like we would do to our dog and you know we're told we're not allowed to do that because we don't have training but you're telling me I can castrate pigs I can do all this stuff so you know it's you know at the time I was able to turn it off um, a lot of substance abuse I was using drugs and stuff and drinking and partying like I said so I found things to entertain myself and make myself happy you know, out of work. And then, you know, you go into that situation and, you know, you just turn your brain off and kind of go with it, right? And you try to think about other things while you're doing it. I remember years ago when we had the refugees from Syria coming to Canada, I remember reading that the jobs they were offered and were told to go work at were to work in the slaughterhouse. So what were your colleagues like? Um, so back then I didn't think that was just starting out, um, when I was leaving the industry kind of, um, that's when it was starting to get really big with the foreign workers and the migrant people coming in from other countries to work in our barns. But as an activist now, we see it countless times and you really see the companies taking advantage of it because young people that are, you know, young don't want to do those jobs. Like, you know, uh, I don't know if it's our school systems are easier to complete now where kids aren't dropping out and having to look for higher paying jobs. You know, I don't, I don't know those rates if, if that's a big thing, you know, like sometimes I wonder if that's a thing, right? Because the reason I needed a job as a, 
youth uh, in that age range is I ha didn't have a job, right? I needed, wasn't going to school. I had to make money, right? So it's either kids aren't looking for jobs in 16 to 18 years old. They're not looking to jump into the workforce and they just know that they don't want to be a part of that anymore or have anything to do with it. Maybe they're just smarter than I was or we were, or they just can tell it's wrong, right? Or we've just done a good job of disconnecting too, right? Maybe we've just done a really good job of saying, hey, that's not a job for you. We have somebody else to do that. Even the farm kids out here in the country, we don't see them going into the farms. The owner of the farm I worked at wanted nothing to do with his dad's farm. You know, like the kids don't want to continue because they know this is wrong and this is weird. And, but they'll still eat the animals. But, you know, <laughs> the connection's not there yet. So I think that's where that comes into play is, you know, we have these so many people coming from other places that need jobs, but we're not willing to educate them. We don't want to give them a high school education and send them to better themselves properly or even let them do one of the jobs they did in their countries too because that's something too. A lot of these people have uh, higher educations but they're told their education isn't good in Canada and they have to go work in a slaughter facility or drive semi, right? I mean, those are two of the most undesirable jobs where people end up. Well, most people eat meat and there are people who plainly think that animals are here for us to eat. So it just has to be done that way. They don't question the whole process of how an animal gets to your plate, as you've just described. However, maybe they care about humans. And of course they care about humans because they are humans themselves. We care about ourselves. So for all the meat-eating human beings out there, I don't think there are many people who would wish this kind of torturous existence for a factory farm or slaughterhouse worker. What would you say to them as meat-eaters who love eating meat, but who care about human health and welfare? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point you bring up because it's something not a lot of, not a lot of people speak on. And I think it's starting to become more aware um, as activists and people are starting to think more about the workers that are in these situations because generally, you know, you're, you're just in that situation kind of forced into it almost, right? Yeah, for, yeah, if it's human rights, that's their big push, then like it, it, we should be doing something for the workers. I mean, the, if you're... If, if you are so upset with your job, you go home and drink yourself, you know, until you're drunk, you're ruining your family life, um, you know, all of consumption of all things. I mean, it, people need to think about that. I mean, you're, if you're doing such a gruesome, violent job, I mean, the, the desensitization that does that, whether that leads into more violence in our communities or maybe thinking violence is okay. It's, you know, violence isn't okay. And every time you consume animals, you're consuming violence in many different forms. And uh, especially to the workers. I mean, the workers, like I said, you're, you don't want to be there, but you're doing it for your family. So you kind of have a disconnect, right? You're able to, to put your blinders on and say, hey, I got to do this for my kids. And, you know, when we put our kids in the perspective, you, wouldn't you do anything for your kids? You know, like, whether it's killing animals all day long and ripping their bodies apart and, you know, and some of these workers, like you said, they can get injured. Yeah, and they're doing this for their families in the end. So I would say to the mediators out there, think about the workers and think about their families because, you know, this could be really, in the end, affecting more than just one person. It, it, it affects our whole society is what it affects. It affects actually taxpayers because this industry is highly tax subsidized. So that's another point to speak to people of is, do you want your tax dollars to be going to 
be paying the wages of these slaughterhouse workers who are in these horrible human rights conditions that we would never want to wish on anyone. We wouldn't think this is happening in Canada, but yet it is. So there's a seed to be planted there of many, I'm sure you know. So in light of our current pandemic crisis that comes exactly from humans eating animals, that is COVID-19 is a virus transmitted from an animal kill market to humans. We know this is a fact. What can you say about your experiences of the filth and the contamination that you've experienced in the animal confinement and killing meat industry here in Canada that makes you think about the spreading of diseases in COVID-19? Yeah, so so you know, it, you know, there's so many different ways. I mean, like you said, like these barns are in such horrible conditions for you know, I, I should say ideal conditions for bacteria growth and all these viruses, right? Um, and same with transmission too. I mean, we can have all the biosecurity in the world, but mosquitoes and flies and mice are coming in and out of the barns. So I mean, you know, where these things can come in and out of the uh, facilities so easily and you know the manure and feces that some of these barns have sometimes if you're not paying attention you could have um, slats overfill or broken water lines and you can have all the animals inside this manure and you know it, it can all lead into disease um, one of the big disease areas was uh, the farrowing areas so like I said if you get one one little bacteria thing that you can kill all the piglets off um, so, you know, it just shows how susceptible these animals are to disease. And that's why the farrowing area was such a clean area was because they're so vulnerable at, um, infancy. It does take nothing to get these animals sick. So, I mean, we had PERS and PED. We have all kinds of viruses already in Canada that the yeah, herds have, but it doesn't, it's okay for us to still consume the animals in Health Canada's point of view. Yeah. Like, like I was saying, I used to vaccinate you know, sometimes 2,000 pigs a day for different kinds of illnesses and vaccines. Well, and the same thing when H1N1 came out back then too, like there's vaccines for everything, right? And yeah, I mean, they know that these diseases come from those places. And same with live markets and the slaughterhouses too. I mean, like it takes one guy not cleaning equipment properly at the end of the day. I mean, look at the listeria outbreak we had a couple of years back where we had listeria everywhere. That's straight from slaughterhouses again, right? I mean, it's, it's time again proven that these places are breeding grounds for, um, for different viruses and disease. I mean, if you're taking body parts and it's rotting and, you know, like, it's a no-brainer. I mean, yeah, there's the same with the live markets, too. I mean, that's a, another same thing, right? Like, all the places, there's no nowhere that's better than the other. They all need to be stopped, generally, in my eyes. Because all this stuff comes from intensive factory farming and intensive animal agriculture. And confinement. And confinement, right? Yeah, I mean, we can just imagine how that ha doesn't happen more often. But I mean, there is so much antibiotics put in the feed and in the food to try and keep these animals healthy too, right? So, you know, they, these industries try so hard too. But yeah, it's... Yeah, and just to speak on that, antibiotic resistance is a major issue these days because all animal all animals are fed antibiotics yep. to stave off infections that might come. They pass that on through us in their meat, in the meat that people eat, and then antibiotics won't work on us and they don't work on us when we get sick and we need them. 
Exactly right. So I mean, it's just a, it's a no win situation for us, especially once we can, mm-hmm. once we know that we can survive off plants. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. It's it is a win situation when we know we can survive off plants. So and now we haven't spoken about this yet about you surviving off plants. I'm very curious to know about your transition from life in industrial animal farming for I don't know how many years now to becoming a vegan activist. What was your transition point from working all these years in both the hog and chicken farming industries to just stopping killing animals yourself? And but yeah. not only that, becoming vegan. How did that all happen? Yeah. So, um, so it, it a lot of it started first with um, meeting my dad in 2009. So, like I had said, my mom abandoned me when I was 13, and she never told my dad that he had a kid. Um, so when, you know, it was, it was getting to me. Um, so I started searching for him when I was 22, uh, and trying to find out who he was and wanted to know if I had health concerns coming up or was he in jail? Like, is he dead? Like, I didn't know nothing. Like I, my mom told me all kinds of stories growing up. And, um, so I, I got an aunt to finally tell me some details and I got her to call him and she called him and she warned him that I was going to be calling him. So I called him one night and said, hey, you have a son. <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, would you want to meet and talk about it? So I met and talked to him and, you know, just told my story. I'm a hog farmer because I'd gone back to hog farming at that time. And, uh, you know, like, you know, it's, you know, got to know him and everything. And turns out he had a bricklaying company uh, for building masonry building bricks and blocks and stuff, building schools. After a month of knowing him, I was like, so, you know, hog farming kind of sucks. And, you know, I would like to try something different. And, you know, like I'd found out that a laborer makes roughly about the same amount of money I was making in the hog farm just to labor for a bricklayer. And I was like, that sounds like a good plan. I'd like to try that, you know. And he's like, well, if you suck, I'll fire you. Just straight blunt with me. <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks, new dad. And <laughs> and then <laughs> I was like, all right. So I got into bricklaying. And, you know, I, I really loved it. I loved it right from day one. Like, I always loved stonework and old buildings and stuff like that. Never knew why or anything. It turns out it was a family thing. My dad's dad was a bricklayer. He was a bricklayer. And even my grandpa's brother was a bricklayer, too. So it's really in my family. And so once I had... Uh, you know, wanted to become a bricklayer and was doing that and was doing it for, uh, in seven years, seven or six years. Uh, yeah. Well, anyways, 2017 is what happened. In 2017, I was working for a different company at the time. We were going to the Crown Royal factory, um, cause we, in Manitoba is where they make Crown Royal and we were building a new building there. And a lady didn't stop at a stop sign on a major highway and took us out at 80 kilometers an hour. Uh, I was driving a truck with four other guys, and she was coming from an oncoming lane, uh, crossing the highway. And uh, I saw her at the last second, swerved, but we, she still hit us, and we rolled uh, rolled twice. We hit a pole, wrapped around the pole, you know, landed. Uh, I was unconscious. Some guy saw the whole accident, cut my seatbelt. And um, I jumped up, scared him, and then he just helped out my boss, who was bleeding from the neck. They had to get the helicopter to come land on the highway and take my boss away. Um, nobody died at the car accident, but it was a life-changing experience when you have a family of you know two kids and your wife and all your animals and your grandpa, and you wake up in a field and you don't know what happened, and you know you may not have gone home, right? Um, 
So that was kind of the start of it. Within a month of that, my wife was getting a tattoo from a lady uh, in a tattoo shop here. And I was telling her my story, right? The hog farming and, you know, the car accident. And through all this, my grandpa was going through cancer. He had lung cancer. So I was helping my grandpa would go through that time as well. And that's quite the experience if you've ever had a loved one with cancer and you go through that. It's, it's tough um, seeing someone suffer and getting their lung taken out. It's crazy. So I was really looking for health and trying to be better for my kids. I didn't want to end up having heart disease or diabetes like my grandma. And this lady had recommended What's the Health on Netflix. So that night we went home. Yeah, and I saw What's the Health, um, the Netflix doc, uh, documentary. And, um, you know, when I saw that movie, you know, I saw the hog farms in North Carolina being exactly what I had done in Manitoba, how close they are to the towns, uh, everything, the whole thing in that movie depicted where I live and that's North Carolina and this is Manitoba. So two different countries, but yet the same process. Like I was like, what's wrong with this picture? Right. And then you hear about all the health benefits and how we don't need to, you know, consume animals to be healthy. And, you know, the, the whole movie I was just blown away. And then after that movie, I was like, well, you know, like, let's try this going vegan thing. And I mean, clearly, like, you know, we don't need to eat animals, right? So from that point on, I stopped eating animals. And, you know, I was the pusher in our household to go vegan. Um, you know, it took my wife and the kids a little longer to get get to it. But I mean, I did all the cooking at the start and, you know, learned all the new recipes and things and and then really kind of, you know, pushed it for my family and saw so many health improvements, right? Um, for me, my asthma got better, like right away. Um, my, uh, daughter, her asthma got better and her indigestion and stomach problems got better right away. She had a lot of constipation and stuff growing up and all that kind of went away. And would you say that was from the dairy? Because that's often known to cause, yeah. uh, cause stomach and asthma issues. Definitely. I definitely think it was the dairy. Because um, once that was taken out, like I said, her asthma is gone. We've been getting her asthma test every six months. The doctor is blown away where she started to where she is now. And I mean, the only thing we've done is gone vegan. Yeah, the doctor won't really acknowledge that. I mean, they have milk flyers on the wall in her <laughs> in the <their> room. Ridiculous. <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, and then with my grandpa who lives with us, I mean, he was 70, 76 when we started this vegan thing. So to switch a 76-year-old to vegan was uh, something else, right? I mean, like I said, he didn't talk to us for three days when we explained dairy milk to him. He was like, you know, like he pictured dairy as his mother back in Germany milking a cow, you know, on a stool, you know, like that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, that's not what we're drinking now anymore. I mean, this is why we have the health problems we have. It's not, it's not like the way it was in 1940, right? And, you know, once he saw the videos and we explained it to him, he was like, you're right. It's it's not for us. Right. And, you know, once he had soy creamer and he could have his coffee cream with soy milk. I mean, he, you know, he, yeah, I mean, he, it's still tough for him sometimes at that age to catch all the vegan, like all the ingredients to be 100 percent. But I mean, he tries hard and he tries to buy the right products. And, you know, he's even noticed the health difference, too. Right. Like with his constipation as well. And everything you know as a as you get older you have more health complications so if you can make things easier then you know your body works a little better <laughs> so i mean it was just a win-win that's amazing you've you have transformed not only yourself but your whole family from the children all the way up to yeah. uh the grandfather it's amazing yeah. so my son probably ate animal products for about six months maybe like for not very long so he didn't really get to um 
experience that thankfully but i mean he you know both my kids are soon to be little activists and they understand the whole process because i mean they have to right because they're going into the world where it's not clear for them and generally the public or teachers they don't think about that kind of stuff and that's another whole battle why we got in with all the health save because it's you know with our kids and we need material to help with these teachers right so I yeah. mean that's why it's so important. Um, that's why that's you know that was the second part of what activism got so important was sharing their story to try and make it easier for our kids. You know these days, obviously you are a dedicated and active advocate for the animals. You're actually the co-organizer of quite a number of animal and vegan advocacy initiatives in Manitoba, Manitoba of all places, such as Manitoba Health Save, Anonymous for the Voiceless, and the Animal Save Movement, where people who care about animals go to slaughterhouses to bear witness to the animals during transport to their deaths. And people all over the world, just anyone can actually participate in these vigils that we have at slaughterhouses. Just go and search the Save Movement online and there's 900 chapters where you can be a part of this too and and see what's really happening to animals. But I just want to talk to you about your street outreach work with Anonymous for the Voiceless in Winnipeg, Manitoba which is in the prairies of Canada for those who are not in Canada and known to be extreme cattle ranching territory. Anonymous for the Voiceless is a global network of how many chapters around the world for Anonymous for the Voiceless? Uh, let's go with 800. 800 let's chapters. 800 now. Then they organize displays in high-traffic urban public areas known as the Cube of Truth. Activists stand in a cube-like formation showing footage on video screens of what happens to animals in the animal agriculture industry behind closed doors while other activists such as yourself try to engage with the passers-by to speak about veganism. So being that you've been behind those closed doors and I imagine you run into many farmers there in Manitoba, presumably angry farmers who stand up for their work, which is their livelihoods. Can you tell us what it's like to engage with farmers in Manitoba when you're doing outreach at these events? What is it like to have a conversation with a farmer in Manitoba? Oh, it's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> I actually enjoy it a lot because, um, you know, they can't pull the wool over my eyes. <laughs> I used to use right. the analogy. Um, you can't tell me anything different because I'll just start listing the processes through the facility. And, you know, I, I've had a couple people that worked even for the same company I worked for come up to me. Oh, what do you know about farming? And then I start listing off, well, which area did you work in? Okay, so these are your tasks every morning. So this is what you do. And, and then it really makes it difficult for them to argue any kind of humane practices is happening in the facility because you know i just simply ask them how many times you have to kill an animal a day like do you think that's necessary like you know i mean so i try to that's why i try to speak up and let as many people hear my story because it can really help people with their activism because when do you know the whole process then when you have these difficult conversations you you don't have to be aggressive in any sort of way or argumentative but you can just be straight up with them i mean you know you know, if they say they're a farmer, what area of the farm do you work in? And then you can kind of go from there, right? And you can kind of debunk their beliefs and maybe help them understand what they're doing is a little bit different than what they believe. And the other thing, too, is to change their perception on vegans, too, right? A lot of farmers just have this perception where a bunch of screaming, yelling, sign-carrying, megaphone-blasting people. And when you um, can sit there and have a great conversation with a guy and he can walk away being like, well, that guy wasn't the normal vegan, Right. 
I've had that. Con- I've I've had many farmers thank me for that because they don't get to have a conversation that ends up leaving on a positive note, where he understands where I'm coming from, and I already understood where he coming from, so he didn't have to explain it. Um, he didn't have to make me feel for him in any sort of way because I've been there and I understand what he's doing is hard and physically demanding and emotionally draining. And I think that's something people need to take into account with, you know, when they're talking to farmers because they really believe they're feeding Canada and their, or their country and they really p- feel like they're providing a service that's as important as a doctor's office, right? And it's just trying to help them understand that, you know, there's a way to do this without killing anything. I mean, oat milk has gotten so popular that, you know, it's one of the, it's set to be a billion dollar industry probably. And Canada produces one of the highest oat yield crops in the world because of our climate. So, I mean, you know, like if you tell these farmers this or, or pea, pea protein too, like Canada can grow peas like crazy, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. right we there. Need them, we need them like crazy now too for the huge demand in Beyond Burgers. And that's the thing too. If you if you can have a conversation with a farmer and they understand that they're still needed and they can actually do their job where there's no violence and no killing and no sadness of watching animals suffer. Because I can tell you right now, like you feel bad when you see see these things, but you you just you're you're meant to believe that this is normal and that you're like I said, feeding the world. I mean, this is what we're told as farmers, right? That's how I would felt. Like I felt during the like you know during any kind of flood or anything because Manitoba is prone for flooding. You know, as a farmer, we we felt, you know, like we're essential, important service, right? Because we're feeding people, right? Um, it's just trying to help them understand there's a way to do it where there's no death involved. And, you know, that's why I said having that conversation can really go really well because they can leave with some new ideas and maybe some options. Yeah, it's definitely planting seeds. I have to say, I saw one even this morning. I'm, you know, it seems more than often these days, I'm seeing stories on the internet about how this farmer transformed from animal farming to oat farming and is now vegan. And there seems to be more and more of those stories every day. Have you, have you transformed any farmers yourself to go vegan? Or at least, are, do you, do you find yourself changing hearts and minds there when you're speaking to farmers or? Or definitely changing minds for sure you're changing yeah, minds already yeah i think changing minds at least and at least like i said giving a different perspective on veganism because like i said like I'm not, it's not a shot at the vegan community or anything in any sort of way i mean but if you haven't lived it it's hard to speak on it i mean you can read as much as you want on slaughter and factory farming you can watch all the documentaries till you're blue in the face but until you perform those procedures every day for years i mean it's it's a different experience right yeah, so I, I enjoy talking to farmers. I, I actually, I, I I love those ones. Those are actually my best conversations because I feel like I can actually have an educated conversation with them where it might change their mind in the end about what they're doing, at least think about it maybe and push them to being a better farmer or something that's not as violent. You are a huge asset to the animal rights movement because you can have those conversations and I really appreciate that for you bringing that to the community and for you, you know, you you have gone such a long way from years and years of working in this horrible industry to suddenly, I guess, watching a documentary, changing your mind and changing your whole life. But not only that, not just changing the way you eat, not just changing the way your whole family eats, 
athletes, but also being an organizer for all of these organizations in Manitoba that probably wouldn't be there without you, I imagine, because my sister lives in the Midwest of uh, South Dakota in the States, and it's mm-hmm. the same, I think it's the same kind of environment there. Um, what is the environment these days like in Manitoba with our pandemic crisis? I'm, I'm curious to know, what is it like there? Because, you know, here things are are getting pretty hairy and and I'm wondering what is it like in November, in Manitoba where the numbers are lower but it's still it's still a huge concern and, and it's a crisis it's a scare well yeah especially with living with somebody who's elderly and has one lung I mean for our, our family it's a little bit more um, uh, we have to be a little more cautious about everything we do uh, my wife also works for a pharmaceutical company in the area so um, they've been told that they're staying open through the whole thing because they make medicine. <laughs> so, I mean, um, you know, we have to take our health a little bit more careful because of that, because, you know, my grandpa, I don't want to see if he can survive through cancer, COVID-19 shouldn't be what takes him down. Um, <laughs> and that's, I really want, I'm going to stick to that. And same with my wife. I mean, she can't afford to, they can't afford to lose people when they're making actual medicine to help people. Right. Um, so, yeah, here it's pretty it's pretty crazy. It's getting there too. Our cases I think are getting up there. I think we're at 21 today. So I mean, it's it's getting up there. I mean, we haven't shut everything down yet, but I mean, our schools have been closed now for uh, a week. Well, yeah, this is the first week, but we kept our kids last week too because of the situation, right? We don't want to put anybody at risk in our household. Yeah, I already bought a bunch of food. I kind of knew this was coming. I've been watching you got it. Got your toilet this. paper? You know it. <laughs> I hope you're stocked up for your large ho- household. Finally, Justin, are there are there any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners in this time of worry, panic, and confusion? Just uh, stay strong. Um, you know, I mean, stay healthy. Stay, you know, try and eat more of that whole foods, plant based diet. I mean, um, you know, I know vegan junk food and comfort food is probably ideal at a time like this. I mean, but if we can try to stay more on the healthier side of things. Uh, keep our inflammation levels down. Different health products we can be using that are antivirals that can help too. Um, you know, uh, plants are medicine. I mean, we already know that. Um, <laughs> most vegans do, I think, uh, for the most part. And if we just keep consuming the plants and staying healthy, I think that's the most important thing. I mean, there's no studies to prove that. But I mean, you know, we know that being whole foods, plant-based lowers inflammation and can be one of the best things for diabetes and all these conditions when diabetes, heart disease, and all those conditions are what seems to be killing the most people with COVID-19. So, I mean, yeah, if we can just stay healthy, I think that's what's important and, you know, keep trying to push that whole foods, plant-based message and, you know, at least do the best we can to, you know, share our stories and, help the youth too, right? It all comes back to, you know, uh, the less we consume of animals, the, everything gets better. <laughs> we save the earth, we save our health, we save everything, right? I mean, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I mean, especially, you know, once we know what we know, I mean, you can be a bodybuilder, you can be any kind of athlete, you can do anything you want on a vegan lifestyle. So it's, it's a, I, I hope everyone can keep it up and yeah, stay active too. And, and and being active too is very important. I mean, it, sometimes people can say it's hard to do, um, but it's important to get out there and see the animals. It reminds you why you're doing it. It helps them know somebody's there for them. Um, and it's, it's tough, but I mean, it can be an empowering experience too. 
Exactly. I want to just as a suggestion to our listeners, when the self-isolation process is over, visit your local animal sanctuaries and you'll see who the animals are that, you know, that Justin's fighting for and that we all are here at Animal Voices. Thank you, Justin Reinick, for coming on today's show to share with us both your honest and detailed accounts of the animal agriculture industry here in Canada and around the world as you worked in them. And thank you for changing your life to speak up for the millions of sentient beings who died needlessly at the hands of humans, spreading disease and environmental devastation during the course of this whole industrialized process around the globe. We need to hear this information more now than ever. To find out more about Justin's work, you can follow him at Justin204Vegan on Instagram, at VeganJustin on Patreon, and follow the social channels at the multiple organizations that he is a part of in Manitoba, including Manitoba Health Save, Steinbeck Animal Save, Anonymous for the Voiceless Winnipeg, DefendAnimalsManitoba.ca, and his YouTube channel at Canadian Vegan Outreach on YouTube. You're putting a lot of stuff out there. Thank you, Justin. Take care and be safe. Awesome. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Animal Voices radio show on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Please join us for next week's show on Friday, April the 3rd. We will present a segment on growing your own food garden in the time of COVID and we'll speak on how to be more self-sufficient, save money, and reconnect with nature amidst economic uncertainty. And for our feature interview, we will have Dr. Aisha Akhtar on the show, who is a double board certified neurologist and public health specialist who works for the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats of the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. She will be on the show to explain to us about zoonotic diseases, pandemics, and what we need to know to survive in this era of COVID-19. Earlier this week, Green Day frontman Billy Joe Armstrong released a cover of the Tommy James and the Shondells song, I Think We're Alone Now, which he recorded in his bedroom. And if you're my age, you'll remember this song being covered by the 80s pop star Tiffany. So to close the show in this time of isolation and social distancing, here is Billy Joe Armstrong performing I Think We're Alone Now. Stay tuned next for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today. And remember to be kind to the animals and stay safe. Seem to be